Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi, I'm one of the elders here, and this year one of the things I'm thankful for is that somebody beside you probably knows how to spell my name. Um, I'm going to be reading the scripture for today. It's going to be in Genesis and in Galatians. We'll start in Genesis 1, and we'll read verses 26 through 29, and then we'll flip to Galatians. So Genesis 1, on page 2 of your pew Bible, starting from verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And Galatians chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. This is found on page 1773 in your pew Bible. From verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. If you're newer with us, we're coming to the end of a series on stewardship that's been going on for 10 weeks. This is week number 11, if I'm counting correctly. And the first 10 weeks, we went through passages of the Bible, especially in the book of Luke, and we worked through those passages and what they said. And this week is going to be different. Um, I want to spend virtually the whole time just on application based on the stuff we talked about over the last 10 weeks. So if you're new, this is going to be kind of different than how sermons normally are here. And... um, We'll see how we do. Okay, so uh, most of you know that it's not possible for me to spend a whole sermon just on application. Um, and so I, I want to do want to review a few things for people who are new or for us. We've been covering this stuff for two years, so I'm sure you have it all mastered by now. The, the first and most basic definition we've been working from is that in the Bible, um, the concept of a steward is somebody who's in charge of a whole household. That is, somebody who owns nothing that's under their charge, but is in charge of everything. That relationship is key. That they own nothing, but they're in charge of everything. And so the two most fundamental ideas in Christian stewardship, in, in our role, what we're doing, what we're saved for, is that actually nothing in our lives is owned by us. And yet everything in our, in our life that's under our trust, we're in charge of. So we can't pretend everything is ours and then tell God he should tell us what to do. It's actually the reverse of that. We don't own anything that in our life ultimately God does. And we are in charge of discerning and understanding what we should do. Does that make sense? 
We own nothing, but he governs. But we, he owns everything, but we govern what's in our lives. Now, there's a few supporting principles to that that I'm going to go through kind of quickly. We talked about how stewardship is our role like Jesus. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 3, was a faithful, was faithful over all God's house. That's what a steward is. It's somebody who rules over a household. And we can be like him in that we're called to the same ministry. So that's encouraging, should be encouraging for us. We were created and redeemed for it. One of the things that's interesting when God creates human beings in Genesis 1, he doesn't give the earth to them. He creates them in the earth, and he gives them a role, which is to rule. That's the word that's used the most times, and then he describes what that rule will look like. But he never says the earth belongs to us. It doesn't belong to us. But he does give us something, right? He says there's a portion of creation, which is every seed-bearing tree, right? That you, because you need food, right? If you're going to work and rule in the earth, you need to be sustained yourself. And so I'm giving you part of the creation that's now yours, so that you're capable of doing everything else. So he never gives us the earth, but he, he sets us loose to rule it. We own nothing, but govern everything. Does that make sense? One of the most fundamental points that is in the Galatians passage that Femi read is that in order for somebody to be a true steward and not just a slave, is the person has to be free to make their own choices about what good to do. The problem with a law is not that it restrains evil. That's usually somewhat good, the, except for the fact that it gives us ideas about what to do that's bad. But this, the, one of the problems with law is law tells you what you're not allowed to do. It limits your good choices, too. And so part of the, the second reason why Jesus freed us in his death and resurrection, the first was to free us from the slavery of sin. The second, the slavery it's talking about in Galatians, is to actually free us from the slavery of God's good and perfect law. Because what God actually wanted was people who didn't need a law so that in every situation they could choose the good. That's why he says, in Christ, once we are in Christ, and we've been set free in Christ, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. Now, of course, the Bible defines what faith is, and it defines what love is. But within that context, what we're here to do as stewards is to figure out what faith working itself out in love is. And that's our job. Which means that our whole life is marked by us being either investors or wasters. Everything in our life is ours to do something with. That means we're in charge of it. That means we're either doing what we're supposed to be doing with it or not. But what we can't do is nothing, right? We're like, our lives are like a perishing resource. You can take it and you can invest it, or you can waste it. Oops. But you can't do nothing, right? And so I've lit that candle for most of the sermons to recognize that our life is like that. Either we're investing it, or we're wasting it, but we're not doing neither, right? And then lastly, is that stewardship lives if worldliness dies. In the parable of the sower, which is found in Mark 4 and a couple other places, um, there's somebody who goes and spreads seeds, and it lands in four different places. In two of them, the seed never really grows much. But in two of them, it lands on pretty good ground, and the seeds grow. And in one of them, it doesn't produce any fruit. There's no grain. And in the other place, it produces a lot of grain and a lot of fruit. Right? So that distinction should be really important to us. If we're Christians, because Christians are people for whom the seed, is, the seed of the Word of God has come in, and it's grown into something, which is real faith. And the question is, is that faith, is our life going to be fruitful? Is it going to account for anything? Is it going to produce any real flourishing? Right? And the difference between those two is, is that in one place, there are weeds and thorns that grow up around the fruit-bearing plant and choke it to death. And so there's no grain. 
They're long little spindly things, and there's nothing growing on them. And in the place where there aren't thorns, it grows up and produces beautifully. That is, we need to recognize one of the most fundamental truths of Christian faith is this. If we love the world, we will not be stewards. And what is— the, you may have real faith. You may have a real faith in Jesus, but you, you also have a second religion, which is faith in this world. And this one will always choke this one. Because this one's on video and this one's on audio. The deeper things of the world, like love and truth and goodness and virtue, are abstract, and we have to relate, re- relate to them in spirit. The others, the food and the sex, are all glandular. They like, we're drawn to them in the very cells of our body. These are always louder. And if we believe in both of them, Worldliness will always overpower and always choke to death real faith in Jesus. And there will be no fruitfulness. Does that make sense? Okay, now, if you believe some of those things, how could we, how could we very, very specifically apply them? And so I want to offer 10 applications. And remember, pastor's applications are not the only things you can do. It's just supposed to stimulate your imagination, okay? So the first and most important stewardship is your inner life, your heart, your soul, your mind. What's going on inside of you? Your inner life is your most important stewardship, and the quality of your inner life determines the quality of everything you steward over. Jesus once said that it's out of the overflow of your heart that your mouth is going to speak. That's really true of everything that comes out of you, all of your stewardships. The quality of what comes out of your life is predetermined by the quality of what's going on in your heart, your soul, and your mind. And that's why so much of the gospel is pointed at that. If you get that right, most everything begins to take care of itself. I mean, Jesus said, listen, in your heart and in your mind, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things are going to be added to you. Most everything else will take care of itself if you get devotion right, okay? In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, never be lacking in spiritual fervor, but keep your passion up serving the Lord. One of the things about all relationships and our fervor, our devotion towards anything, is that for human beings, devotion is kind of like a fire. It doesn't just burn forever by itself. You have to stoke it. You have to feed it. This is true of all of our loves, from sports to romantic to spiritual devotion. All human devotions get dull, and they all have to be fed. And so if you want to have the spiritual devotion where your heart is going in the right direction, you have to stoke the fire. And God has given you everything you need for godliness. He's given you everything you need to stoke the fire. And four of the major ones are— disciplines of devotion, like reading the Bible and prayer. That's probably good for all Christians who are literate, right? But then there's other spiritual disciplines that you can use based on your temperament and where you are in life. For people who are particularly indulgent in their attitudes and in their personalities, fasting is a really important spiritual discipline for you to practice regularly. For some people who are introspective in bad ways, journaling on the basis of the truth of Scripture each day about what's going on inside of you is an incredibly important devotion. There are lots of spiritual disciplines. We just had a long class on this in our, in our Christian ed. Also, being together, right? If you've ever been camping and you try to keep a stick burning by itself, it's really hard. But you get 12 sticks burning together in a fire pit and the thing just conflagrates, right? And faith is like that too. If you get people who love Jesus together, everybody burns brighter. That's why you have to go to church. That's why you should be part of a spiritual community. That's why it's important to have deep spiritual gospel-centered friendships. Does that make sense? There is no— there's no— um, substitute for attending directly to God in worship. Adoring, loving, valuing, 
and pledging your devotion and love to God himself in worship, whether through music or through prayer or through whatever means um, that the Bible enjoins or that you can invent. It's not offensive to him, right? There's some guardrails for that one. And then lastly, obedience. Like whatever it is you learn, whatever it is you're stirring up, you have to, if you put it into practice, something will happen. But if you don't do it, nothing happens. It's like a, a bodybuilder who wants to be muscular, who eats a lot of protein, but doesn't work out. The act of repenting, of saying that you're wrong and asking for forgiveness, and the, that doing what Jesus has told you to do, and figuring out how that works, and learning to love the good in the act of doing it, and serving others, and being on mission, all of those actions are like the exercise of faith. Don't think reading your Bible is exercising faith. It sort of is. It's like a basketball player having the faith to go to practice. But it's not the same as playing the game. The acts of love, the choices of faith and courage, the movement of the heart towards hope, that's the game. That's the thing itself. Does that make sense? And unless we do the things themselves, we don't grow, we don't strengthen, and we don't prepare our hearts to steward everything well. The second is our body. Scripture says is that our body— is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That our bodies in Christ were purchased. One of the reasons why Jesus came in a body and died in a body is that in his death and resurrection, he repurchased our bodies that required redemption. In the end, he will raise our bodies from the dead. We will eternally exist as embodied creatures. You're not going to be a soul playing a soulish harp on a cloud. You will be forever an embodied creature in salvation or damnation. And so your, and so your body matters. For two reasons. One is, everything immaterial about you that you think is you can only become relatable to other people through your body. You can feel love towards somebody, but you can't like beam that love into their spirit. It's got your love has to come out your body somehow. Words, actions of service, something, and then they receive that with their body, and then it can be translated to their soul, heart, mind, spirit. And so nothing can be delivered between human beings. There can be no love without the work of bodies. But in addition to that, one of the things that's unique about Christian faith is it's the only faith where the temple comes to you. Right? God makes every human being into a spiritual temple and sends that temple to the people who need to have access to the temple, who who won't come to it. He sends us, and our bodies have to be healed. H-E-E-L-E-D to that purpose. Okay, so here's some things to think about in terms of stewarding our bodies. One is, one and two are, have a rhythm with each other. The human body is made to work. We are made to do stuff with our bodies. We are pre-programmed to hate ourselves in our lives, to feel like our life isn't worthwhile if we are not employed in something. Now, I don't mean by employment in this context, financial job employment. But human beings have to believe they're contributing to someone else's life and they're going out and they're doing something. But then they're also to be on a schedule of ceasing and resting and getting that dynamic right. Working hard and resting. And working and resting is fundamental to living in a body. That's why the Sabbath commandment is so important. And why it's part of the Ten Commandments and why it comes up over and over again in the Old Testament. Third is exercise. And the best one-liner I can give you for this is for vanity, for—not for vanity, but for vigor, right? When you decide how to work out or how to exercise or how to—how to condition your body for life, if you're really seeking God's kingdom and righteousness first, the question is not, how can I look the hottest? Or how can I intimidate people the best? Or how can I make these high heels look really great on these calves? 
Okay, that's not the idea. Listen, if if you're not married and you're seeking a partner, it's fine to look pretty and to work out so that you don't look tubby. That's fine. And if, and if you're, and if you're married, it's good to like not make fidelity from your spouse harder than it needs to be. Like, like I want to look good for my wife. But that, but the main focus of what I do to my physical body in terms of exercise is to prepare myself to have energy and vigor for the long-term service of Christ in all the roles, responsibilities, and rhythms of my life. Okay, so I don't, I don't do stuff that's short-term. I do stuff that's long-term. The, even the, down to the exercises I choose and how long I exercise and what I plan to do is all rooted in the fact that I'm trying to stay healthy long and I'm trying to be energetic as long as I can so that I can do the work God has given me to do. So I'm not frail or fragile. And so I'm ready to do what's in front of me to do. Does that make sense? So for vigor, not vanity. And then one of the things that we have to deal with— and you know, boo-hoo, we're rich, right? Is that in America, no matter how poor you are, the biggest problem that we have is not starvation, but obesity, okay? Even among the poor, like I know that even in Madison, you'll see signs that say this many people are hungry. I'm not going to get into the sociological problems with that research. Um, a, A lot of that include people, if somebody says that they were hungry at any point in an entire calendar year, they are sometimes statistically considered at risk for hunger, which I think is just statistic padding that's horrifically unhelpful. The, the fact is, is that among the poorest people in America, the biggest health problem that they have is obesity and early onset diabetes. And this is true for everybody through every socioeconomic class, all the way up to the richest possible people. We have to get ourselves to not eat stuff and to not eat bad stuff. Okay? And so we can't be healthy long-term. You cannot have a deeply fruitful 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s if you start—if you're killing yourself in your 20s and your 30s. You've got to think forward because it's going to dictate so many things about your health, so many things about your vigor, so many things about your concentration. And one of the great things about the human body is if you stop doing stuff that's killing it, it recovers. People who smoke for decades and they stop smoking and they, their body bounces back from that. And so one of the things that we need to think about is, listen, we need to eat. Mostly less. Listen, you, you, this, in some ways this is a first world problem, but listen, in both ancient Babylon and in ancient Egypt, there was a saying that said this. A man lives on a quarter of the food he eats and his doctors on the other three quarters. That is a three thousand-year-old proverb. It's always been true for human beings. Even when most people still wondered if they have enough to eat. Right? And then last is mental health. And, and we don't talk about a lot, this a lot in the church. And I, I have a somewhat combative relationship with the mental health community. I'm going to be honest with you. It's probably meaner than it needs to be, okay? But I believe that some of the ways we treat mental illness— In 40 years, we will see them as barbaric as treating people with mercury was in the 1860s, okay? In the last service, I used electric shock therapy as my example. And then one of the doctors, Bob, was like, actually, for depression now, we're using electric shock therapy a lot. It's like this thing of choice. But there there are things that we practice, and I think there'll be a time where we'll realize that to really heal human beings, we cannot use this many pharmaceuticals or the ones we're using or at the doses we're using them. However, however— if we can't get ourselves within, within a certain 
range of mental health. Okay, I don't mean taking away all your bad feelings and all your gloominess. But if, if we can't get to a certain kind of functionality, we will, will destroy our bodies for want of a sound mind. When I was in, um, when I was in seminary, I, I really didn't like the idea of taking Ritalin or something when I was studying really long bench, like 14-hour days. And um, I have what people call ADD. And so I, I, I wanted to be above the medicine. And so on certain days where I would study really long, sometimes I would drink up to two two-liter bottles of Pepsi. Because, you know, I wanted to be healthy and not take drugs. And so I would— <laughs> So, like, the whole day long, I would, like, pour Pepsi in this glass, and, like, about every 40 seconds, I would pick the glass up and take a tiny sip out of it and put it back down. Which is not only terrible for your body because you drink all that sugar, it's really bad for your teeth, too. Right? And so, because I didn't want to do one thing, I actually was doing something worse. That'd be one thing if I would be just strong enough with my concentration. I'm, I'm kind of at that place now where I don't need to take that stuff, and I can concentrate, and I don't drink Pepsi, okay? Like, I— I drink tea without sugar, right? Okay. And, um, but if you don't deal with some of these mental health issues, at least in the short term, or get counseling, or really deal with them, a lot of mental health issues, you actually don't need to be on medication the rest of your life. You need to face the issue. A large amount of mental health problems that need medication to be dealt with That is the way we deal with them because we won't deal with them. Now, some are just like chemical stuff that you just won the genetic lottery and you need to take that pill. Like there's certain kinds of like bipolar disorders and and certain kinds of depressions. You you should probably take something. And it's not unchristian to take something. But there are some folks that like, because you won't deal with stuff from your background, you have anxiety attacks and you need to take stuff. And in the short term, you should take it. But in the long term, you need to deal with what happened to you. And as somebody who's been trying to work through that in the last year, it is humiliating, and it is excruciating, and it is depressing. And every time I think that I'm to the, through it, and I've really gained, I see more, and it's very difficult, but it's very productive. And you can't live afraid. Because if you don't deal with it, you will destroy your body, not just your mind. Third, sorry, I spent too much time on that. Okay, so third is time. Another problem with wealth that American society struggles with, and when I say wealth, I mean basically everybody who lives in America. Okay, I'm not talking about the upper middle class and higher. Um, Economically, okay, everybody in America has time on their hands. Virtually nobody actually works 16-hour days, right? In the Bible, it would talk about the hours of the day, and it would be from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. because that was the work day for basically everyone. We don't do that here. And so people have an enormous amount of discretionary time, but we don't think we have discretionary time because we fill it with stuff, right? It's like when you talk to a college student who's a communications major and they think they're busy, you know? Or a couple of—you'll think this is funny—a couple of parents that have one child, right? And they're like, I'm so busy. We have a child now, and I've got so many responsibilities, and I'm divided between my child. And you know, I'm like, "Um, yeah, we we have four, so screw you. I mean, like— Ranging from 15 to 7, we have a disabled child, like, boo-hoo, okay? But then, like, I know families with, like, eight children, six of them adopted, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a little relative, right? But in, in Americans are commonly watch 20 hours of television and say that they're busy. 
They're like, oh, I just don't know where the time— I mean, I just have no time for anything. I haven't read my Bible in weeks, you know, that kind of thing. And I don't know if you know this, but under—for couples under 30 that are getting divorced, do you know what the number one thing they say is the reason why their marriage is coming apart? The amount of video games one of the people is playing. It is disproportionately one of the genders. (laughs) So— a couple things on time strategies. There's a good bit on this on uh, the podcast that'll come out this afternoon, Podcast 85. So go to that. I'm going to be brief on this. One is decide beforehand how much you are or are not going to indulge in anything that can take up your discretionary time. When do you watch YouTube? When don't you? When do you shop online? When don't you? What days do you watch television? For how long? With whom? What shows are you going to watch? You have to pre-decide all of it because anything that attacks your glandular desires, where there's a physiological attraction to it, which is everything with a screen, if you don't decide beforehand in the moment, you will always decide to do it. It's the same reason you'll eat ice cream after 8 o'clock. Same thing. It's just—it's your body. Your body wants the thing, and it'll convince you to do it. And so the only way you can say no is if you decide beforehand you're not going to do it, right? Second, tell others what you decided so that they can pressure you. Listen, use shame for good reasons. Right? Like, my, my, my kids knowing what I do and don't do, that helps me so much. Right? Their judgment, it just saves me sometimes. Okay? Two is use tech to fight tech. So I have anti-pornography stuff on all my devices, but it's not only that, and it not only sends reports to my wife as well as people on the elder board, it also tracks when I'm—everything I do online. So if I'm shopping at 2 o'clock on Thursday when I'm supposed to be writing my sermon, Dan Pinka knows. He's like, so you were on eBay. Were you doing sermon research? (laughs) Right? I have an app that whenever I—because when I do research, I'll come across a lot of articles and stuff like that that I'd like to read, but they're not really that critically part of the research for this sermon, but I could easily persuade myself to give myself time to read it. What I do is I have this app. I just save it to that app. So I'll get to read it later. I only read about half of it later. Because some of it in the moment I wanted to read it, but I didn't really want to read it, and the rest I read when I want to on my own time. And it allows me to stay focused on what I'm doing. You can use tech to fight tech. Get um, device—so t- two things about the use of devices. One, silence everything on your devices. The only time my phone moves or makes a sound is when I get a text message or a phone call. That's it. For God's sakes, if you have any social media, anything on your phone, if you cannot be prevailed upon to delete it, which would be for your health, then silence the heck out of it. Okay? Like, if you, like honest to God, if you have Facebook on your phone and, you, and it alerts you when things happen, or Instagram, you need to come up at the end of service for a hug. Because it, like, that stuff kills. It destroys, like, especially younger people. But everybody is angrier and more upset, but because you, you feel good looking at the stuff, it, like, it just draws you in. Get all the crap out of your bedroom. TVs. In fact, a lot of tech people who aren't Christians in any meaningful sense have said you should not have your phone in your bedroom. If you know this, but millennials are having some of the least sex of any generation in America. And it's not because they have strict rules about it, okay? Or that, like, they're not normal human beings. It's because they've got screens in their bedrooms and because they play video games instead of going on dates, right? And everybody's doing that now. That's the new normal. Right? And one of the ways you can save your heart and your life and your time is get your TV out of your bedroom, even if you're single. It's stealing from the next day. Get it out of your bedroom. Your bedroom is for prayer, making love, sleeping, and bathing and dressing, and quiet. And that's it. Okay?
Okay. And then revisit your plan every couple of months. It's important stuff. Okay, four through seven fall under what we would call social justice, which is what you owe others. Social justice is not a political program of programs and political organizations that will produce the just society according to people with a particular political philosophy. Social justice, that phrase, was created by Catholic social theorists, theologians who are writing about what we owe each other. Okay? So there's, that means there's a certain kind of libertarianism that is unchristian. Just like there's a certain kind of communitarianism like communism that's unchristian. You owe other people things. So like I didn't ask to owe my parents anything. But I do. I have moral obligations to my mom, who's still living. I didn't ask to have moral obligations to my in-laws. But when I married their daughter, I took on moral obligations to my in-laws, which have affected my life considerably. I didn't ask to have moral obligations to America, but I have them because I'm a citizen here. I didn't ask to have moral obligations to all of my friends or my co-workers, but I have certain moral obligations to them as part of being human and existing within a community. And those exist— whether I like them or not, or whether I have consented to them or not. Okay? And you can talk about a lot of different areas. We're planning to to do a whole podcast on just these four things. But you can think through them fairly simply to get started in application this way. One is for family, don't ignore problems. It's just the first and foremost. Everybody, everybody has the least amount of time for their family. They don't want to face problems in their family because if you start an argument, those people are there all the time to hate you right? And you've, you feel like you've tried stuff before and you feel like it didn't work, right? And so you feel like, what's it, why would I do more? I'm just going to make it worse. But listen, don't do that. Let me talk to the men for just a minute, men who are married. If you know your relationship isn't good with your wife, you need to do something right now for a couple of reasons. Um, women statistically speaking, in terms of distributions, care a lot more about the quality of their relationships than men do. We have more shallower relationships, and we enjoy each of them proportionately, so if a certain number of them aren't going very well, we're fine. Women tend to have fewer, more intense relationships, and they tend to care a lot more about the quality of those relationships. So listen, you can't afford to ignore her unhappiness. Because she'll say some stuff, And then she'll stop saying stuff, and you'll think things are going okay. But she's really just grown cynical. And then about three to five years after that, she plans her escape, and then she leaves you. Right? And then, the normal guy deal is when there's a real problem, then we face it. When the problem has come to a sticking point, and we have to do something, then we act. It's like the the male lion who, like, the female lions get all the food, but when, like, there's a fight, he bestirs himself and does something, and then he lays back down, right? That's how men are. You need to bestir yourself now. Right now. Talk to her. Get counseling. Ask, like, do something. Because you cannot afford, either with your children or your spouse or whatever is going on in your home, do not ignore problems. Two, friendships. Years ago, the average American had between four and six friendships. Healthy for a human being is somewhere between three and six. The average American right now has two or less. Between 30 and 40 percent of Americans have no people who they would consider friends that they could call on in a time of need. That is inhuman. We are not programmed to function that way. 
However, once you get out of college, it's difficult to make friends because we don't do the fundamentals. Like, if you go to, if you went to college, like, you know, there's people in my dorm, we'd be like, hey, you want to go to the dining hall? Yeah, let's go to the dining hall. And you just go to the dining hall. And like, you talk and like, enjoy each other and like, you got friends, right? And then you get out of college, right? Now you got a life and things are going here and there. And like, you know, that's why everybody's making all their friends at work because that's the closest thing to the dorm, right? And they don't actually know how to make friends, start new conversations, take further steps in personal intimacy, engage in activities, figure out what people care about and do that together. Like all the stuff that's involved in creating real deep and meaningful friendships, we're not very good at. It takes a lot of work. In fact, I feel like for my, in my life with four children and a wife and running things at this church and being part of other nonprofits and blah, 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 I feel like having a friend, a male friend, is more complicated than building a building. Okay? I feel like it is a Herculean effort. And I've made two fairly close guy friends in the eight years that I've been here, in addition to other friends that I had, and both of them have moved away, because it's Madison. Your friends are going to move away. So not only do you have to work on your friendships, you have to be constantly building new people that could be closer friends, so that when somebody leaves, you can promote somebody else. You know? So you got to work on having friends. And once you get into those friendships, then as you follow Christ, what should happen to them will, will rise. With neighbors, um, just try to grab moments when you can with them. That's the best you can do sometimes in the way we isolate ourselves. And then from those moments of kindness and care, they'll realize that you care about them and they'll be open to more moments. And lastly, in terms of citizenship, I can't spend a lot of time on this, but there, um, in America right now, the intensity of interpolitical hatred is now higher than interracial hatred. There is no racial hatred in America now that can compare to the hatred we feel for others who have a different political perspective. That's sociologically measured now in America in a way that's been careful enough that that's a certainty, okay? The hatred between Democrats and Republicans, right and left, conservative, progressive, okay? And so— the fever in America is not Trumpism and not Clintonism or whatever. It's not progressivism or conservatism. It's not. And if you think it is, it's because you have been drawn into the false religion of us versus them, my tribe versus that tribe, American showmanship within our media systems, which are the biggest, one of the biggest growth areas in the economy grabbing our attention and making us feel like those other people are stupid and crazy and thank God I know how to interpret the world and that what I think is right. There's a perfectly reasonable version of the Democratic Party from a Christian perspective. Aside from they need to flip on abortion. But other than that, like, you can come up with a perfectly reasonable version of being a Democrat and be a biblical Christian. And the same thing is true for a conservative point of view. There's some stuff in there that should flip. I think it's more things that are smaller things than abortion. But there's some things that would have to flip in there about some understandings about how market works and how everybody is brought into working, like that stuff. But there's a perfectly reasonable version of that. The best resource that I found recently is this book by Ben Sass. Now, truth in advertising, I have kind of a crush on Ben Sass, and he is a Republican senator from Kansas. He's also the Republican that has openly criticized President Trump the most, especially on moral issues and how we talk to each other. Um, but this book goes over the sociological research on American loneliness, why in our loneliness we turn to media, especially cable news and things like that, and memes of hatred, 
how that functions in terms of our public life together, how it can be healed in a relationship, and so on. It's the best resource I know of. Sass was a PhD at Yale. He's both been in the university, and he's run businesses and saved businesses. So he kind of straddles all this stuff, and I don't think Washington's ruined him yet. So this, this book is the best single volume I know for dealing with, because if we want to rise above what we—if we, we want to be what we're supposed to be as Christians in our culture— we need to sweat this fever out of ourselves in the church first. And then we have got a chance to model to the culture what it would be, look like to be within the temple of God. A place where that hatred does not hold sway. And if we were a place that treated men and women both well, that embraced and received children that supported and developed our marriages into real lifelong unions of happiness and joy. We were truly multi-ethnic, and the inter-political inter hatred was not—did not hold sway here. I'd be baptizing 100 people a week. The gospel would feel so powerful in this moment that people would turn to Jesus in, in, in numbers and in groups that we have not yet imagined. Okay, I need to keep moving here. Productivity and work. Number eight. This is a lot of the hours of our life. Here's four things quickly. There's more on the podcast. One, seek to be productive. You are made to be productive, to contribute to the lives of others. Work is a good thing. It's not a curse. It exists in the Bible before the curse happens. Your work is under the condition of the degradation of the curse, but you were made for work. Productivity is good. Two, seek to increase your competence. You can contribute more to the lives of others and to the lives of the people around you if you grow in competence. Too many people do not seek to grow. If you're under 35, that is the main thing you should be doing in your career right now, is growing. Third is economy. People get so upset about how degraded they feel by having to compete in the economic world. Okay, listen. The fact that there is a competitive market comes from the fact that there is a market. What economists call markets is the reason that we are not all still farmers. Like, with, like, pulling stuff without oxen, okay? Like, the reason why half of our children don't die under the age of two, the reason why, like, you have clothing made out of more than wool and burlap, okay, is because there's such a thing called a market, okay? The market is competitive, but it's also cooperative, and it's created this thing we call wealth. And it's fundamentally transformed your life so that this is the best moment in all of human history ever to live in. M competitive markets created that. And they keep you honest. I mean, think about this. You think I'm a good enough man to bust my butt every week to try to pre preach the best sermon that I possibly can? Like, I wish I was. I wish I was that good a man. But the fact that I have brothers and sisters in churches all over Madison that are busting their butts to serve everybody at their church as well as they can every week puts a kind of cooperative competitiveness on me to keep me sharp. And do I like the fact that I'm partly competing with and partly cooperating with churches that I even give some of our money to? Not in the flesh, I'm not. But there's part of me that knows I need that, or I would get lazy. I would just feel entitled. You're just supposed to come here. You have to come here. And I'd get a little bit more entitled. My sermons get a little worse. I mean, they're already bad enough, right? So that's important. So don't despise that. Right? And then the last is to move up out of love, not avarice, right? You should want to move up in your career. You should want to become more productive and be able to do more. But not so that, just so that you can make more money. That's the side effect. That'll be great. You'll enjoy it as long as it doesn't destroy you. But like, 
part of the reason you want to move up is because there are, there are less talented, less gifted, and less skilled people out there than you. And they need to do your job. Because they can't do the thing you could work up into. And when you stay where you are, you steal an opportunity from them. And as you move up, you don't just open spaces directly beneath you. If you're really moving up out of productivity, not rent-seeking, trying to get people to pay for your luxury, but if you're really moving up because you're being more productive and creating more value for other people, it's not just a ladder, it's a triangle. You create more and more and more and more spaces for people to be employed and to employ their God-given gifts and to work and to, and to do things for the good and flourishing of other people. And so the reason we should try to be better at what we're doing and better at what we are is so that more people can participate in making other people's lives flourish. Right? When I came here, we had a staff of like five people. And now our staff is almost three times that size. And you know some of them. They're great people. And your, your life would be less valuable. You, like your life would be less enriched if they weren't in it. And that exists because I busted my butt for seven years to gather people and to create excitement about Jesus and to do the work of the gospel and to, to build the church together so that those people could come in and minister to and make it all grow. And I could have not done that. I could have done a lot more fishing. A lot more fishing. <laughs> and instead of golf, I would have done more hunting. Like, I could have done a lot more things. I could have watched more TV. But I believed that God wanted me to grow and to get better and to— use that to help the lives of other people and trust him to produce things and then to create space for others, right? And eventually, I'll move out of the way and somebody better than me will lead. And that's how flourishing happens. Okay, sorry, we're running out of time here. Um, the body of Christ. We're going to spend the next four weeks focusing on this one. Our Advent series, um, we're going to be doing the book well, I'm going to be taking the sermons out of the book, Joy to the World by Greg Forster. It's a pretty heady book. Somebody said it was like substance except more academic, um, which I think is a compliment. Um, and I don't, I don't think of substance as an academic book. So um, it's really a very good book, but I'm not going to encourage everybody to read it. But if you're the sort of person, if you're a literary person, then you may want to read the book. But we're going to focus on that. But in the short term, what I would say is this. If the church is a new nation of people— seeking to show Jesus to the world. One of the most important things that you can do is just show up. And like G.K. Chesterton said, everything worth doing is also worth doing poorly. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing. And so we did this bridge um, where everybody got one of these cardboard things and could um, write their stewardship on it and bring it back and create this bridge. And um, we, we took, people took 600 of them. And um, they came back in different groups. Like the first three, it was almost nothing was on them, right? The first third. The middle third is like all the type A people who like scheduled family devotions around it, and they're all like painted and stuff. And then the last three, there's like very little on. People are like, we gotta get this done, and brought it in. Um, and, and one of these is actually from my dog, Luna. Um, she's a six-month-old Samoy puppy, and so she just chewed the corner off of one of them. I was like, that's good enough. That's good enough, Luna. You got to steward your chewing. I get it, right? And we put it in here, man. It was like everything, pets included, and there's 150 of them, okay? And so you can imagine, right? It went—it was, it was slower last service, but it still broke, <laughs> right? 
So if, if 300 of the 600 who, that went out came back in, if even 300 of them came back, I would be standing on that right now. And you see, the thing is, it's not that we don't want to show up. It's not that we don't care. Because people took 600 of them. How many people took more than one? You're like, you took one, and you're like, oh, I lost it. I still need to do this. You got it another week. Okay, so we got some liars too. Jesus loves you, right? <laughs> and so, you see, it's not intention. It's discipline. To just show up and to do something, right? That's, and that's why it says in Second Peter, remember? Add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And then what? To knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. Growing into discipline is necessary for the body of Christ to be what it can be. Right? We can be just—if nobody else came to High Point Church, we could be at least four times as spiritually powerful as we are. And we're doing great things. I mean, the, the, what this church is doing in the community and beyond is really exciting. And I love being the pastor of this church. There's literally not another church— in the entire world that I know about that I would rather pastor, okay? And that's—most pastors wouldn't even go to the church they pastor in the town that they pastor, okay? If they were not the pastor. But I know we have in us, with the growth of a little bit more discipline and a little bit more substance, an incredible amount of spiritual power that we have never yet dreamed of tapping into in our personal lives, but as a church and nation together. Does that make sense? Okay, and then lastly— and I've only got a minute or two for this, is resources and our wealth. I haven't talked about money hardly at all in this series. And so I'm going to take about five minutes to do this. Okay, we're going to hang on for just a couple more minutes. Um, most of our productivity in our life, we convert into money through work. And so our money matters incredibly. And so here are some applications for the use of our money. One is we're supposed to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness in everything that we do, so our money is not exempt from that. That doesn't mean that you should—you'll um, never hear me at this church say, close your eyes and pray what, what you think God wants you to give, and then give that amount. You'll never hear me pray that in an offering, because that's not what that verse says. It doesn't say, close your, close your eyes and think mystically about what God would want you to do. No, it's, it takes two concrete things that Jesus taught about. His kingdom, what is he doing in the world through the gospel? And his righteousness, what does he believe is right, true, and beautiful? And what should we give ourselves to and commit ourselves to in the world? And what does it mean to seek and commit ourselves to those things? And then you just sort that out. Second is um, to pursue financial freedom. The average, Ameri average American family spends like 103% of their income. They, um, about 23% of their income every month goes to service debt. And most of that is not a mortgage on a house. And so people are just underwater. And so when they hear people talk in church about a ministry of generosity or a ministry of investment with our finances, they're like, yeah, I, I'm investing in MasterCard right now, right? And so the first step for most people is not to do something for the church. It's to let us do something for you. You need to take Financial Peace University in January. And listen, if you don't have—if you're like, I don't have any money at all, I can't even be in that class. Listen, we have scholarships available. The average family in 90 days saves $5,200 after they take that class. A family that was losing money every month before it. What you, so you can't be free if you're financially enslaved because you're too afraid. You can't take risks. And so what most people need to do first is to achieve financial freedom. That takes a lot of people up to three years. 
some people five years, to really become financially free. But it can happen. It can happen to you. You can do that. And then it makes an enormous difference in actually living towards generosity. Third is use a benchmark and a budget. Um, I, I always have used the Old Testament tithe. It's 10%. That's a benchmark for me. I don't go below that. And so throughout Lexi's in my life, we've always used that as a benchmark to, to measure and compare ourselves to. Though in the New Testament, we're not actually called to, to tithe. We're called to give out of grace in response to what Christ has done for us. So a good passage for that is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you want to read that later. Where, where Paul says, think about the wealth that Jesus has given to you, and now do freely whatever you want to do with your wealth. And if that moves you such that you would give less than 10%, which is the old tithe, which is what people under the law that were not moved by grace did, then that should give you pause. Does that make sense? And then um, give out of your budget, not your wallet. If you sit in January and you look at a spreadsheet, that's totally different than opening your wallet and saying, oh, I don't even carry cash anymore. I just shouldn't give. Right? And then giving as a discipline, not sporadically, completely transforms the way you look at your money. And it also is required for anything to get accomplished with giving. Right? Stuff gets accomplished when you do something over a long period of time. The reason the Ellers can do what they're talking about is because they've been there for years. Because we've been giving to them for years. Right? And then lastly, use spiritual financial planners. Here's what I mean. For a lot of people, you have financial planners. People who know the tax laws, people who know where money should go, people who knows when to, people know what to do when at different stages of your life so that you can have a retirement or whatever you're gunning for. Knowing how to invest in charity and in evangelism and in spirituality requires at least as much expertise or more. Um, most charity is toxic and harms the people who receive it. Most helping hurts. And so you can be financially free and you can give out of grace and you can give out of your budget, not out of your wallet, and you can give as discipline and not sporadically, and you can still rat hole every dollar that you have saved and that you give because you give to helping that hurts. And so one of the things that I try to do at High Point with our finance team and with our missions board and with our staff team is to make sure that we are the top level spiritual investors we can possibly be for every dollar given at High Point Church to anything. But there are more people who are really good spiritual financial planners. And we can help you find some of those. But don't be naive about giving. Um, most people want to keep running their charity. Even after they have long realized it's doing very little good. Because we're committed to our ideologies of charity. And we're committed to our own jobs. And it's very slow that we say this isn't working. We need to do something else. Right? But somebody whose job it is to invest and to know what's going on are much quicker to be like, that's not working. We need to do something else here. And we try to do that. So, obviously there are 50,000 different stewardships that we can engage in, but I want to I leave you with this thought. What we normally really believe as worldly people is that the best case scenario is that we would be our own masters. We don't be enemy slave. Why should we be? We should be free people, right? Here's why that's naive. You are a terrible slave master to yourself. You've been killing yourself since the day you were born. Short-sighted, self-centered. 
wasting the divine image on <laughs> porn and pastries. You're a terrible master for yourself. And there's no master like God. The God who it says in 1 Timothy 5 gives us everything for our enjoyment. He's not stingy. First thing he did when he told human beings to rule over this, he's like, there's this whole species of plants that all belong to you. Now just eat them up, man. There were mangoes in that. Do you realize this? And all the way through, he's never said, listen, I don't want you to take anything. He's like, listen, I'm going to give you all this. So much of it is just for you to enjoy. But I want you to invest some of it. You're stewards. Right? He's the God who says, from the measure you give, I'm going to give back to you. I mean, think about this. God treats everything you do in his name for him, for his kingdom of righteousness. He counts that as debt to himself. I mean, ima imagine that, right? Like, it's like, it's like I do everything for my children. Like, they're born, I diaper them, I do everything. They've never done it. Like, what can they do for me? Right? And then one of my kids does something for me, and I count it as debt. Everything she's ever done for me, I'm going to give her back in addition a hundredfold. Right? Who does that? What master, when his slave does what they're supposed to do, counts that as work credited that he has to pay back extravagantly. That's exactly how God talks about us, our service of him. He's the only master who says, everything that you give up, I will give you back a hundred times in this life, and in the life to come, eternal life. He's the only master that says, the reason I'm leaving, and leaving you as a steward, and I'm not here right now, is because I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. He's the only master, including comparison to yourself. He's the only master that when you follow him, you will only ever do what is good, beautiful, truthful, and noble. He'll never ask you to do something that is truly wrong, ugly, foolish, destructive. And he's the only master that is so beautiful that when you follow him and serve him, he makes you like himself into the image of the beauty of the glory of his Son. Listen, if you were not in Christ's sons and daughters of God, and you were only God's slaves, and there was nothing more than that, that would be enough to spiritually feed on for a thousand years. It is a hundred times better than being your own master. And the only reason we don't see that is because we have, no, we, we have no idea how wicked a master to ourselves we are. And we have no idea yet how great a master the Lord is. But it should occur to us when he tells us these unflinching promises, when he sends his son to die to redeem us, and when he makes us unblushing promises of eternal life, and when he gives us the same job he gives his own son, You see, believing that is the only way you can do any of this advice. You can't do any of this advice. We love the world way too much. Only if we see the kind of master God is. The one who is so good that he made us his sons and daughters. He died to redeem us. And who's promised us everything. 
And that, master, you could be a slave for. But that is the one who makes you his adopted child. So that we can be the stewards we were created to be. That's right. Fathers, we get ready to to celebrate with a couple people the beginning of their stewardship in baptism. I pray that you'd help us to love and honor and support and love you, to receive from you everything we're supposed to, to give ourselves entirely to you. We pray that, pray that you'd help us to so rejoice in being your servants and then in, your, in being your sons and daughters that all of the things that would choke us to death, we'd let go of, and that we would be like those plants that were fruitful 30 and 50 and 100 times what you planted in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we go into baptism,